Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. special edition of the Michael Deacon program. I am joined by a very special guest, Mr. Jim Morris, who will be talking about his book, The Dreaming Circus, Special Ops, LSD, and My Unlikely Path to Toltec Wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, for the very first time, he will make his debut here. Give him a round of applause. Let's bring in our guest. And joining me right now is Mr. Jim Morris. How are you? I'm good. And you? I'm fantastic. Do you care? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, great. thank you. I'm, I'm glad you do care, and I care as well. Uh, I hope you are doing well out there, and I'm glad, you know, we are able to do this. And, you know, as soon as I saw the cover of your book there, I thought, man, I need to bring this guy right on in. Okay, that was, uh, I didn't write that subtitle, but it seems to be working. Yes, it's a eye-catcher, nonetheless, and so is the book. The book is actually quite fantastic. I was able to read uh, not all of it, but some of it, and I, I've i been enjoying it so far. You've lived a pretty... Well, it, it's, it's still building. You're you're going to get better parts than you've had so far. It's a, Well, so far, it's, it's great. It's tremendous. A true page-turner, as they say, and for those that don't know, you are the author of the book Dreaming... Or, well, The Dreaming Circus, rather. Yeah, that was my kind of my nickname for, for that crazy Toltec circus I was involved in for about 10 years. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, it, it was quite a show, and a very, um, shall we say, educational one. 
Oh yes, and you are a fellow Californian as well. That's something we talked about here off air. And I'm out here in Southern California. You are sort of nearby in the area. And it's always great to speak to a fellow Californian that has their head on right out here. Well, uh, yeah, we're somewhat isolated in (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's tremendous. But, you know, you do have a very, very interesting background. I thought we could sort of gloss over that and then just sort of jump right on in and you know you are yes you are a retired u.s army special forces major and i do want to say thank you for your service as well and i mean that in the most respectful way not in the condescending way that you hear and people don't really think you're genuine but you know i do thank you for that well you're welcome it was a pleasure (laughs) yeah did you have fun out there I'm sorry? I said, you have fun out there. You you served three tours out there. Uh, I did have fun out there. It, Vietnam, it was quite a dangerous place, but it was also exotic and fascinating and mysterious and very in the pirates and the Far East and all of that. And you weren't scared at all when you were out there. You, What, what was that like? Um, it was, well, you had a kind of a, for for a solid year, you had a kind of a constant low-level adrenaline charge, and then when uh, things got active, you had a high-level adrenaline charge. And it, it was interesting, actually, because um, it, there were palpable physical effects. Uh, the time, time slowed, colors got brighter, sound faded, um, and um, uh, it was just anybody who's in a combat situation is should be considered legally insane. Really? So, not, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not operating out of your normal head. You're, you're running on autopilot. It's uh, it's quite an amazing effect. I would think all your senses are sort of firing off at all times in, in, a, in a battlefield scenario. Yeah. You're, theoretically, you're supposed to be all excited and all that sort of stuff, but it's a lot more like you're repairing a Swiss watch. Really? You were that calm? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're well, you were uh, totally present is what you were. It was, uh, you're not, you're, you're just not in your normal head. It's, if, uh, it, it, that high level of adrenaline, uh, the closest thing you can get to that without armed ground, ground combat, as far as I know, is a parachute jump, which makes it, I mean, parachute jumps are mostly not practical in today's world, but um, there are some circumstances, but mostly not. But boy, are they ever good training for combat because uh, you get to learn how to do simple mechanical tasks while scared spitless, which is the essence of combat. And so you're out there fighting, and um, I, I would I would assume you definitely saw plenty of action. Um, not as much as some people, but obviously more than others. Uh, okay. I had three tours. The first two were six month tours and I didn't complete the second one because I got hit. But, um, those two, uh, well, actually in, in my third tour, I was a staff officer, but I, I used to go to the field when it seemed, when it seemed appropriate, which a lot of the time it was. Uh, but you know, it wasn't like every, it wasn't all I did. I didn't just go out and get debriefed from one and get ready for the next one. You know, I would come back and do other things and then 
hook up with some other team and go out again. Understood. I'm sure you must have been uh, scared as hell when you were hit. Uh, no, uh, no, I was. Uh, uh, the only time, the only time I can well, I can remember two times being scared. Uh, the first time was on the airplane about an hour before we landed in Vietnam, and it suddenly kind of washed over me that oh my god, I was going someplace where there were people down there trying to kill me. Yeah, and jeez, um, I was, I was just. I was paralyzed, and I sat there for maybe 10 minutes and got on top of that fear and rode it for the next six months. Wild. Very wild. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Um, it, well, uh, boy, I was really bored when I came home. <laughs> oh, wow. That's pretty funny. And what led you? Uh, to wanting to become a, a soldier at all? Uh, well, that's that's that that is a long and complicated story. But I had one of those one of those childhoods where I was kind of locked up and kept inside, and I read adventure tales, and I wanted to have my own adventures. So uh, when I got in college, I took ROTC, and uh, uh, infantry was my first choice for a uh, for a branch, and I got it. And then I lucked into uh, getting a special forces assignment. Um, I wanted it, uh, but I didn't have a chance actually to volunteer, but I got it anyway. And um, uh, I, it was such a, I mean, those guys, I was absolutely convinced that I was in the best military unit that had ever existed. Forget the Knights of the Round Table, uh, forget um, the Seventh Cavalry, forget all of those storied units of your, we were the guys. You were the men, yes. Um, and, and I was so deeply honored to be one of those guys. And um, the, the older guys in the unit who had been around a while were, without doubt, the most impressive people I had ever met in my life. They were just amazing people. You know, they spoke two or three languages, and they were black belts in two or three martial arts, and they were quite happy to parachute from an airplane at 30,000 feet, and, uh, you know, they blow stuff up and shoot guns and uh, uh, talk to diplomats, and they were great, just great people, amazing people. Very nice. Well, you sure asked for an adventure, and you received it. Oh, I did. Tenfold. My goodness. And when this was going on, you must have been rather young. And I'm thinking, where were you um, politically at that time? Did you sort of feel you were doing this for all the right reasons, either a personal no, reason I, or political I, sort of? I, I, I kind of pro forma. I was kind of pro forma uh, conservative. Um, but my family had been and I hadn't. I mean, my I'm, my politics today are probably middle-of-the-road Democrat, you know, not progressive, not recalcitrant, but um, uh, just, you know, basic middle-of-the-road Democrat. Uh, but at, then, uh, at that time, I was a middle-of-the-road Republican. Of course, the Republicans were different. Um, I don't want to offend any That's okay, yes. uh, of your listeners. That's all right. I'm not going to. I'm not going to say bad things about anybody, uh, but um, uh, being a Republican was different. 
You know, in fact, I think for the most part, politicians were different. We I mean, different. I voted for Goldwater, man. I hear you. Know? you. Yes. And and I voted for him because not because he was a Democrat or a Republican or anything else. I voted for him because I respected him as a man. Uh, I took one look at, at his face and I thought, this is a solid guy. And I took one look at Lyndon Johnson's face and, and buttoned my wallet. I think many people did actually feel that way as well, but you know how politics you know can be. Well, then came Nixon. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. My point exactly. Uh, Yeah, I I can remember the night of the Watergate burglary. I was just I was just walking through uh, the living room, and the TV was on, and the Huntley Brinkley report was on, and there was a report about the Watergate burglary, and I said, "Well, that's it, Nixon." has cashed his check because either he knew about that, in which case he's a crook, or he didn't know about about it, in which case he was incompetent. But either way, he's gone. And it took the rest of the country another, what, two, two and a half years to um, catch up with me on that one. And I I hate to go forward in time here and leave in Vietnam um, during that era. We'll, We'll return to that in a second. But with what's going on in the uh, world of politics today, um, does any of this surprise you what's going on currently? It, it, it dismays me. Uh, I, I remember in, oh, when was it, 82, I was in El Salvador. And, you know, the, the El Salvador was run by like 30 families. I think it was 13 families pretty much owned El Salvador. And... I thought, you know, I'm so glad I come from a country where a guy like uh, like me who comes from, you know, I didn't, certainly didn't come from money. It was uh, sort of the upper upper middle of the middle class. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, we managed to put together enough money to send me to college, but my parents hadn't been to college and their parents hadn't finished high school and. You know, it was, it was, I mean, I came from Oklahoma. It was a frontier society or a post-frontier society. And um, and where the hell am I going with that? Well, uh, basically you're showcasing oh yeah, we that were, you... We were talking about the politics of yes. it. Yes. And uh, uh, which, you know, is maybe a little off topic and maybe not. Not I'm really. Not, I'm not sure. I haven't, no, it all, I haven't it, thought of this. It all connects. It all connects. Don't but worry. It's, it's interesting to, to discuss it that way. Oh yeah, it all comes full circle. Though I would say, the I would say is history repeating itself to a certain degree. Yeah, I I remember you know I okay I was eight when World War Two ended, and I remember uh, Eisenhower's presidency quite well. Uh, he was president when I was in high school, and my first vote was for Kennedy. And uh, it seems to me that in those days. Uh, both parties fielded candidates who were rock solid gentlemen with with the interests of the country and the people of the country primary primary in their considerations. And I don't see that now. Yeah, we are pretty don't see that now. pretty empty of that sort of um, those sort of traits that you know make. Oh yeah, well I was talking about El yeah. Salvador. El and, Salvador. I was so lucky that I came from a country where, uh, you know, where you you weren't born into a class and stuck in it. Well, that's not so much true 
now as it was 40 years ago. And that, that, that dismays me somewhat. Yeah, that's very interesting. Fascinating times um, that we are going through right now, especially with what's been going on. Uh, not just with, you know, the elections and the scandals that follow that sort of deal, but just, you know, the pandemic in general as well. You know, all these sort of things oh, yeah. that have been going on. It's, it's pretty wild. These are wild times. Well, and I always wonder how history will sort of remember this time. Well, it's hard, to, it's hard to find, uh, anything in print or on, uh, on the screen, uh, that's good about the pandemic. Right. But it's been a blessing to me. I wouldn't have finished that book if I was stuck here, you know, by <laughs> That's myself. That's true. I mean, yeah, you, you definitely were able to get uh, lots of things done during the downtime, no doubt. And I'm glad you Boy, were able you. to. Yeah, I'm down. I'm, I'm glad you were able to get this book out. This book is uh, fantastic. I was, as I was saying earlier, and going back to Vietnam again, as we revisit history here for a moment, um, did you personally see any any fragging going out? You know, that's something that's been sort of known about for many, many uh, years, no, very public. No, no. Look, there, there wasn't that in Special Forces because we didn't have um, that kind of we – were, we were a solid professional outfit. Now, I have, I have one of my best friends um, belong to a unit that uh, – guy's company commander got fragged. And um, actually, I think in this guy's case, his superiors didn't look into it too closely because they were glad to be rid of him too. Uh, but um, actually, the psyops guys I knew were using psyops as cover for, intelli- for an intelligence operation, so they weren't real. <laughs> they weren't real psyops guys. That right. was their cover story. <laughs> Understood. Understood. And when you went out there and then returned. You know, knowing, well, I don't know if you knew this uh, at the time, you know, when you were out there, there was all kinds of uh, things going around uh, in the media about Vietnam and it was, you know, gave you guys a a bad, they were, they were trying to really, you know, muddy the waters in terms of the war and lots of people had such a negative opinion on the soldiers. I was just curious when you returned, did you face any of that yourself? Um, okay, I, I'm going to back up a little bit and get back to Vietnam because in my last assignment, yes, sir. I was the information officer. And part of my job was to uh, liaise with and carry around and protect and inform uh, TV and print journalists. So I knew a lot of those guys, and I, I knew them well. Um, and uh, I had a lot of respect for the, for the guys who were, who were in Vietnam and uh, covering the stories. They were neat guys. Um, but, okay, like one time, we had mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things about the culture of Vietnam is the Kaodai religion, which has six popes and six messiahs, one of whom is Victor Hugo. And uh, there's so, anyway, um, there, was a, there was a prison in the, in the town that I was in, and uh, okay, there was a prison on Kong Song Island uh, where the guy—I mean, the guy had a lot of autonomy and he didn't have enough money to run it right, and it was—it was a hellhole. But the guy in the trunk where I was stationed was a little genius, and he managed to build a paradise in this prison. 
and uh, so much so that during Tet, when the Viet Cong broke into the prison and tried to make people leave, they had to herd them out at gunpoint. Oh, wow. Nobody wanted to leave this prison. Yeah, uh, they they were split into six compounds. They had um, a beautification uh, contest going, and uh, the winners got a a twenty percent pass every night the next the next week, and they could go to town and you know have. A, I mean, it was. It, it was beautiful. And anyway, I, I, it wasn't part of my operation, but I knew about it, and I was really interested in it. And I tried to get, um, I can't remember, he was famous at the time, and nobody would remember his name now anyway, but he was he was quite famous TV reporter. And I said, look, this is a great story. It's, yeah. it's visual. It's, it's the, the Kaudai Temple at this place is beautiful. I mean, it's, and they have, one of the compounds, they have deer roaming the, grounds it's beautiful and and he said look he said even when our when our uh, consciences get the better of us and we do a story about something like that nobody remembers having seen it and i could never get anybody to even take a look at this place it's amazing that is amazing it was, it was just amazing yeah i mean it, you would expect them to want to be interested in that but i guess <laughs> it's not a you know it's not a disaster so their uh, interest well, in that wanted, windows. They wanted an they wanted an action movie, and yeah. they looked around until they found it. Uh, which you know there was plenty of it to find, but uh, there was there was other stuff too. Uh, on my first tour, I, among my other many things that I did, ran combat patrols, uh, did all kinds of weird stuff. I was the action officer on the construction of a village for the lepers and the Jirai tribe of Montagnards, because the, the Jirai tribe had the highest incidence of leprosy in the world, 0.6%. Oh. Wow. And, uh, you know, like six out of a thousand people had leprosy. And um, uh, and they used to treat them just like they did in biblical days. They just threw them out into the jungle. Sorry, you can't live here anymore. Wow, so, crazy. Well, we partnered up with, uh, we had a couple, a missionary couple that lived in that town, this was early. The missionaries had to take shelter later, but they were still living out among the people. And so it was a joint effort between me and the Christian Missionary Alliance. I mean me, I mean my team. The Christian Missionary Alliance and um, the local USAID guy who, um, anyway, so we uh, we provided all the lepers in, 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 in the province uh, the material to build their own li- their own village. Bob, uh, the missionary, was he was adamant about that. He said, "We've got to teach them to be self-sufficient, because we're not going to be here forever, and Vietnamese aren't going to take care of them. So we've got to teach them to be self self-sufficient." And you know, the the scaredest I ever was in Vietnam was I split a jug of rice wine with the chief of that village off the same straw, and uh, you know, I knew it wasn't dangerous, but still. I'm sharing a jug of rice wine off the same straw with a guy with leprosy. Yeah. And wow. I want leprosy, you know. Yeah, of course. Uh, and, you know, the, the, and I, of course, I didn't catch it. I, I knew that the odds were that I wouldn't. I mean, very high that I would not. Uh, it requires, uh, leprosy is a contagious disease, but it, 
requires uh, prolonged contact in unsanitary conditions. So, you know, I, I knew I was okay. In fact, one of my interpreters had leprosy and uh, trained him to parachute. I used to call him the leaping leopard. <laughs> I like that. That's pretty funny. Well, he he was uh, he, still with his leprosy. Last I heard, he was a captain in the Vietnamese Army. So, oh wow, South Vietnamese Army. Um, but um, when I knew him, he was uh, 15 years old, and he he was our houseboy, and he learned enough English to get promoted to interpreter. And uh, uh, obviously, he wasn't one of our better interpreters. <laughs> Understood. It seems like you actually had yeah. a pretty good time out there in Vietnam. Your experience was in. A, I had a wonderful time. Yeah. I saw every. I mean, I was just. I was just. It was like, oh, everything I saw was fascinating. You know, I see. I would see guys with Zippo lighters wearing loincloths. I would see um, uh, bare-breasted ladies with rice baskets on their back. I would see um, guys. Uh, uh, with crossbows hunting rats for breakfast. Um, I could, I, could, I mean, I could go on forever about that. You had a great experience then, it seems. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it absolutely. Didn't, so it didn't impact you in any negative way like it impacted so many other soldiers out there. Your experience was a positive one. Well, you know, they went over in, a, in part of an American military unit, and um, so they really had no contact with the people. So they had no real idea that they were doing anybody any good. Uh, they were just hanging their life out there for somebody to shoot at right. for no visible reason. You know, I mean, there were reasons, but they didn't see them. And, um, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't hold any ill will against any GI that thought we were wrong in Vietnam because they didn't see anything to indicate otherwise. Uh, whereas all I saw was stuff to indicate otherwise. You know, I saw uh, desperate people who needed our help and were extremely grateful for it. Yeah, that's one thing we don't really hear often enough, in my opinion. The fact that so many of uh, American soldiers out there were doing good and trying to help those around them. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that was, uh, that was well, that was, that was just basic for special forces. You know, our medics, um, somewhere around here, I've got a, a report from that first trip, and I think our medics treated six, something like, in in 180 days, they treated something like 6,000 outpatients or something. I mean, people would just line up, you know, and they were, they would, it was very, very quick, and, uh, well, we were, Okay, one of our patrols brought a, they went, they found a village out in the jungle that had been hiding out in the jungle. And, uh, they had, for instance, not only had they never heard of the Republic of Vietnam, the country that they lived in, <laughs> they'd never heard of soap. Wow. They'd never heard of soap. And so we brought them in and one little girl in this village had, I don't know, she was, she looked like she'd been French fried. She looked her skin looked like a French fried onion ring, and oh, um, man. they wrapped that girl in bacitracin, which is an antibiotic, and it took her six months. But they fixed her, and uh, you know, when you see something like that, you think it's worth it for that alone. Yeah, uh, and, of course. You know, 
and um, you know, and, and I know people today in North Carolina that um, I know a mountain yard who lives in North Carolina, and I didn't know him in Vietnam, but his brother was my best friend, and his brother was uh, finally assassinated. But uh, long story. Oh my! Uh, but you know, so. Um, I, as like I said, I could go. I mean, I've written three books about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you have plenty to talk about in, in terms of Vietnam, and of course, um, drug use was pretty common, and what's well recorded uh, throughout history not, here. Not, 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 not NSF. We, it just didn't happen. Um, yes. Well, I know. I knew of one case, oddly enough, a West Point captain who. Uh, uh, and somehow all that paperwork just lost, but, uh, he may be a general today for all I know, but, um, no, he would have been, re- he would have been retired like 20 years ago, even if he did make general. But I think they just said, you know, go back to work and don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slap on the wrist. Um, so you didn't see anything like that yeah, when you were out yeah, there. Well, it, 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 you know, they took one look at it and said, it's not, it's just not worth destroying this guy's life over and the army needs him. He's pretty good at what he does, you know? I hear you. And, so, uh, you personally, you didn't, ex- you didn't see anyone, uh, using, did you, or did you? No, I had, I had one conversation with, a. we had a, a, a party at the, this headquarters that I was in one time and, and the band was made up of GIs from another unit. And I, during the, during the break, I just shot the breeze with the, with the, uh, with the drummer. And, uh, he was, he was telling me about his outfit. They smoked a lot of weed and stuff like that, but I didn't see it. I mean, personally, if I was out there, I would definitely have, uh, smoked something. Well, uh, you know, like I said, we were, we were a professional organization and, uh, you know, we weren't, go- we weren't doing our two years. Most of us were there for 20. And, oh, man. um, so that's not, you know, you're not, um, you know, it's, that's not a good career. <laughs> no, 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 not if you're for sure. But, you know, if it was a short term uh, sort of thing, if I was only going to be there for a short time. You know, my nerves would be going off the wall. So I, I think I would probably need something like that um, out there personally. Well, I, I did. I, I did smoke weed and in, uh, in Haight-Ashbury. Actually, I was on my way back to Vietnam and I had a three day layover. So I went to Haight-Ashbury and. Uh, hooked up with some people and wound up getting loaded that and had a little fun and nothing wrong with that yeah well I, the thing that was interesting to me about it was that the guy my my host um he he wanted to drop some acid and he okay. asked me if, if i minded if i minded and i said no it's your, your apartment go ahead and so he did and then a little bit later uh we were sitting there and it was the first time i ever heard the doors and um <laughs> We were listening to the Doors' first album, and he said, "Listen to that. That's the greatest Afro-Cuban rhythm I ever heard." And I picked up the the dust jacket, the record jacket, and I said, "No, man, that's not, not an Afro-Cuban rhythm. That's some band called the Doors doing a song called The End." And he said, "Not the record, man. The refrigerator motor. Listen to it. That's an acid joke." Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I'm like, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Yeah, it's in the book. Oh, no, it's not in the book. No, I don't I think, write it up. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's in the book. But um, 
Was this uh, the first time with the acid? Uh, well, I didn't do any. Oh, you didn't do uh, any? It's the first time I... No, I didn't do any. I was I, I smoked a joint, but, um, you know, by that time, I'd read enough about it to realize it wasn't going to make me crazy or be addictive or any of that, so I didn't see any reason not to. But uh, it seemed only, you know, he, he was being a perfect host, and I accepted this hospitality. But I didn't accept it. I, I could have turned on to acid, but I thought, all right, I can't risk a freak out the night before I go back to Vietnam. That's not going to work. And uh, actually, it was two nights before I went back to Vietnam. Uh, but I didn't want to risk it, so I didn't um, go after. I was through with all that. Yes, once you were free from that, that's when you went down that lo- you went down that road. But well, before we get there, you know, um, you you were wounded. Basically, you had the you had three Purple Hearts. Four, four actually, yes. Yeah. But uh, only two of the wounds were serious. The other two, I tripped over a punji steak and <laughs> took an antibiotic and slapped a uh, Band-Aid on it and continued to march. So it wasn't two of them were, you know, uh, the... the uh, it was on a technicality, yes. Purple Heart's pretty loose. It just says wounds resulting, in enemy, for, resulting from enemy action. And it doesn't say how serious the wound has to be. I think you could theoretically get a Purple Heart for a paper cut from a captured enemy document, but <laughs> that's I pretty don't f- know anybody who's ever claimed that's, one like that. That's pretty you funny. You can also get one for getting getting killed. So Yeah, true. Fun. Yeah, so you, you get one uh, automatically by default, it seems. Um, well, you, you know, you've got to get hurt. I mean, most people go through their year in combat and don't get a Purple Heart. And many people get something that, that could be, uh, considered, you know, could, many people get, get wounds that could have got them a purple heart, but they don't get the purple heart. It just happened that my medic was up on his paperwork, so I got a purple heart for those two bungee stakes. And then the other two, I totally cleaned up for those. I mean, I, I earned them in spades. Nice. Very nice. Well, I'm glad to hear that your experience wasn't as awful as, uh, some of the other people you hear about out there. And once you returned, what was that like for you? Uh, coming back after going through what you did, what was life like for you then? Well, uh, the interesting part was that I spent the first, let's see, uh, I was wounded in the end of March, let's say April. Uh, by May, I was in Fitzsimmons General Hospital uh, in Colorado, and I was there until uh, January of '69. Uh, so, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time shuffling around in pajamas, and then I got got pretty well recovered, and they put me to, put me back in a green suit and made me an administrator in the hospital, even though I was still a patient. And um, so, uh, I had. I had some time to get acclimated. Uh, for instance, um, uh, Janice with Big Brother and the Holding Company uh, played a date in Denver while I was there, and I went to that. And um, I was still in the Army when I did that. It was a great concert, too. Um, and uh, uh, Hunter Thompson's um, Hell's Angels book came out. I read that. 
Um, Dark Shadows was on, on uh, television during that period. That was interesting. The White Album came out during that period. So I realized very quickly that the country that I came home to was not the country I'd left, not, not much like it at all. That's what I was figuring, that it must have been kind of um, wild for you to see that, the sort of shift in culture at that time. It was, uh, uh, truthfully, I, I was, I loved it. I was, I mean, I, I, the, the old, do you realize what 50s corporate America was like? Probably really uh, boring. Boring. Really boring, yes. Boring. And all of a sudden, America wasn't boring anymore. It was fun. And uh, yeah, it was it was really fun. And um, so you know, and I went back to grad school, and you know, I had the basic grad school experience. Very nice. Everything was good. You are um, you're a young man. You're in and out of relationships, and what happened? You get married. Uh, well, I was already married. Oh, you were already married. Divorced. Oh, you got divorced. Yeah, I was already married. Yeah, I got divorced. That was just, you know, a marriage I shouldn't have been in in the first place was suddenly intolerable. And uh, then I got married again, and then I got divorced again. Oh my! Married again. And, how many uh, times yeah, have you been? Uh, how many times have you been married, Jim? I've been married five times, divorced four. Five times, and, Jim. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. And yeah, divorced four and widowed one. And you didn't learn. Uh, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke. Well, I, I didn't screw up as bad as, <laughs> as I went along, um, or in the same way, you know, so I kind of finally got a bracket on it and, um, it was, it was well, it, uh, truthfully, it's, it's that way in my family. My dad was married four times. My mother was married three times, although she was widowed once. She was only divorced once. Um, and um, uh, on and on, you know, like that. So it was. It, was, it wasn't. Stra- it's not strange in that part of the world. And uh, we later found out we were part Cherokee, and that's uh, the Cherokee. Uh, well, most of them are, are uh, Protestant Christians now, so they are not. They don't have the old Cherokee attitude. But the old Cherokee attitude was. Hey, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, you know, try another one. I'm starting to think, Jim, that you should have been a Mormon. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. I, yes. I assure you. I assure you that's that's a false premise based on exactly. <laughs> yes, I, I I couldn't imagine being married to uh, multiple women. By the way, that would be um, not good, in my opinion. Well, it was educational. Right. Yes, uh, for science. Yeah, and um, Jim, uh, Jim, I got to ask you: um, are, are you religious at all during this time? Um, by the way, during this period of, uh, of your life, during that period, no, I was a militant atheist during that period. Oh, okay, but I began to realize in Vietnam that uh, okay, the official story doesn't check out. Yeah, incidentally, uh, that's a rule of thumb: the official story does not check out. Doesn't matter what the official story is; it does not check out. But I began to realize that the official story didn't check out, but there was something there. Uh, there, you know, there was something, something going on more than what they told me about in high school physics. Understood. <laughs> and um, would you say using psychedelics made you sort of come to that conclusion? 
it, it, yeah, a little bit. Um, it was, I mean, yeah, I, I did it for that reason. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd read the electric Kool-Aid acid test before I returned on to LSD, but I'd also read uh, Elvis Huxley and um, some other some other stuff. So I knew that people were getting more out of it than appreciation for, you know, uh, acid rock. Um, although that was fine too. And and do you still remember the first time you um, dropped acid or took LSD rather? Oh yeah, there's a, there's a, an entire chapter that's basically a transcript of my first LSD trip. Is one of the early chapters of the Dreaming Circus, and it was uh, I've tried to describe it, and I just don't do it as well as I did in that chapter. But it was it was it was a wild and crazy experience, and it was a wild and crazy experience just doing normal stuff, going to the grocery store, playing music, yeah. um, uh, you know, hanging out and shooting the breeze. But it all had uh, spiritual overtones and mystical significance. You know, it was amazing, just amazing. And out here in Southern California, where we both reside, back in the uh, 60s and 70s, lots of LSD um, was moved around out here by the uh, Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Yeah, I remember those guys. I mean, I, remember, I didn't know them. I remember reading about them. And uh, uh, actually, the second time, second time I ever got turned on to LSD, uh, my friend who is from Texas, against the accent that I'm going to imitate, he said, "Have you tried the White Osley?" And uh, I hadn't, but I did. And uh, you know, it was just it looked like an aspirin. But it was allegedly pressed by Augustus Southwick Stanley the third him very self and uh was uh swell. <laughs> very nice. Yeah, Timothy Leary had a had a cabin out here as well back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it turned out that um at one point uh, Richard Alpert and I had had the same girlfriend, but uh, <laughs> whoa. That's that's another whole story that I'm not going to get into. So he's like your Eskimo brother, in other words. Well, he knew her well before I did, oh, years before. I see. Uh, but, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, she and I were a thing off and on for like 17 years. Oh, she she almost became the wife. Well, she was the only she was the only woman who was ever a playmate of the month and had a story in the same issue, or had a story in the magazine at all. She it's, was a writer. I made see. her living as a figure model. And what happened? Um, it, it didn't work out between you two. Uh, it wasn't that sort of thing. She lived in New York. Oh, okay, I see. I would see her when I was when I was see her when I was in New York. But she was, um, uh, well, she's written whole books about it. Her, her her next to last book before she died was titled "Sleeping with Bad Boys." Oh, you were mentioned. Uh, no, I was. I came in after her. Her. Her um, main period, but I've always enjoyed the fact that I had an affair with a woman who slept with James Dean and turned Norman Mailer down. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Not a bad way to go. Yeah, not a bad way to go. And I miss her. She was she was great. She was sweet, cool, funny woman. Yeah, she finally she finally uh, got married, and um, 
uh, I heard her husband to do my text. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It is. I know. I think it is. That is pretty funny. Yeah. So, um, lots of people out there, you know, they think, you know, like psychedelics, it's going to make them really uh, go insane. But uh, the reality is, uh, you don't really go insane. Well, uh, it happens. Well, you know, very I rarely. Guy, I used to know a guy in Norman, Oklahoma, named Bert Bruce, and uh, that was his nickname. And he he had definitely stayed too long at the fair. And uh, I knew another guy who got turned on to psychedelics and hoped uh, to help him deal with the fact that he was dying of leukemia and had about a month to live. And you know what? That was not a good experience for that boy. Really? It ruined him? Yeah. Uh, it, I don't know. He just he took off walking, and that's the last I saw. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. Uh, well, I would, I would yeah. have to say a lot of these individuals already had some sort of prior psychological oh, yeah. sort of issue already, so that's probably what well, happened. Well, the guy, the, guy, the guy who turned me on, uh, my friend Zoltan, um, he... Um, you know, he said that he went through, I mean, Zoll was not, uh, he didn't have a degree in psych or, or any, any, any credentials of any sort, but he should have. He knew the stuff. He was a smart guy. Uh, he was, he was thoughtful and compassionate. And anyway, he, he, he said he asked himself the question, how's this guy going to do? And, and then he thought, you got to do fine. You know, he's, he's got his, he's pretty got his head screwed on pretty tight he'll be okay and i was yeah i would say i wouldn't recommend it to everyone obviously but it is being sort of something that is actually being more and more recommended in today's world it's more acceptable now than ever um you know there there's all kinds of clinical trials going on all over the place here in the united states uh for ptsd and uh for oh, yeah. alcoholism and, and, and Depression. The thing that annoys me is that those trials were going on prior. Well, of course, yeah, you know? way before. And my my late wife Myrna, for instance, was a, a patient of uh, Oscar Janiger, who was the psychiatrist who gave LSD to Cary Grant and Unace Neen, and um, and Myrna, and uh, you know he was. He was already dusting off space for his Nobel because of his promising research. And this was in the late 50s. And, you know, then all of a sudden the FBI showed up and not only confiscated his stash, they confiscated all his records. So he couldn't even write up what he'd already done. So, um, you know, he was he continued to be a successful psychiatrist. Understood, uh, yes. only thought they I think they only thought they got all this stash, but uh, that's funny. In any case, um, uh, you know the research was there; the stuff was already promising. They were already getting excellent results. But uh, well, okay, Ken Kesey, uh, the subject of uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, got his start with LSD uh, as a as an undergrad at Stanford. Um, in drug tests that were sponsored by the CIA. And the CIA uh, 
Well, they were, they were not pleased with the results because they were trying to control people. And that's right. People, people on LSD just insist on controlling themselves. Right. Lots of, um, and usually, usually to their benefit. Uh, in fact, okay, this is something I haven't, uh, as you can imagine, I've done a, several of these interviews. Sure. They're, they're very interesting because I'm learning how book promotion works in the 21st century. And, you know, I was, I was an editor, uh, paperback editor in New York in, in the 80s. And so I was, I was a whiz at promoting books then, but it's all different world now. But anyway, um, one of the things that, um, right, where am I going with this? Um, the, uh, so one of the things that I've learned, uh, doing these, doing these promotions is, oh, I was going to say what happened to all the guys that I used to do that stuff. Right. Well, in, uh, yeah. Where are these guys? What happened? Well, out of, out of, out of my mob that I did all this LSD with, uh, one of those guys, uh, retired as a senior vice president of a multinational corporation. And he wasn't a legacy kid. He worked his way up. I mean, once, once his wife got pregnant, he realized, oh, I got to get serious. I got a family to raise, raise and just turned to and did it. Yeah. You know, he just went after it. Um, and one of my other buddies, one of my old roommates, uh, he is a, a millionaire developer in Dallas. Um, uh, another one of my old buds, um, was a district judge in Oklahoma. And if you, uh, call his office and ask for him by the nickname he had back then, he will recess court because he doesn't want his clerks talking to that person. Whoa. But, uh, wow. Okay. But he's, you know, he's, he's, I mean, the last thing I personally ever heard this guy say is, does anybody have the dope? You know, because yes. we were going to we were going to we were going to Fort Worth for a Stones concert nice. in '73. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, Stevie Wonder was the warm up. How great! Wow, that that must have been a fun yeah. time too in the, uh, in that parking lot. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and my girlfriend, we were driving. I was driving. I was always the guy who drove. And now oh, the driver. Um, my girlfriend was in the right front seat, and then we had about three people in, no, three or four people in the back seat, which was pretty crowded. Pretty back. packed house. Anyway, yeah. well, my girlfriend was sitting there, and she was turning a box of chocolate-covered cherries. Just she, she was about to open it, but she got fascinated by it, and she was turning it over and over and over on her hands. And I got, I looked over and I said, "What?" And she looked at me and she said, "It's so smooth." It has so many sides. <laughs> <laughs> she was gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like it to me. Well, I, well it was it was a great. Uh, I drove through uh, Gatesville, Texas. No, Gainesville, Texas. I get them mixed up, and one of them's where Fort Hood is, and the other one is on the way to Dallas from Norman, Oklahoma. But it, it was it was it was Disneyland. I mean, it was just, you know, and it's this crappy little town off to the side of the road. Uh, amazing. Right. And your experience with LSD set you on a sort of journey, and uh, it says, like in your book, a very unlikely path to Toltec wisdom. Um, can you explain that for you know those 
new well, listeners out there. Well, okay, here's the thing about LSD. It, it tells you things. And one of the things it told me was to stop taking LSD after about three years. I, I had, um, uh, I said, you know, when you started this, you were too uptight, and you're getting way too loose. Ah, and okay. I flushed, I flushed my stash, but uh, then all of a sudden, I didn't have, you know, uh, I couldn't like plug into the electric circuits anymore. So, um, uh, I, uh, I, I got got really depressed, and then I discovered. Carlos Castaneda, and um, I realized when I read the first, well, actually it was his second book, uh, A Separate Reality, was the first one I latched onto, and uh, I thought, well, wow, this guy's got a whole different way of looking at life, and his teacher, uh, Don Juan, called um, the Toltec Path the Warrior's Way. Well, I understood that, and I began to realize that... um, they, what they were teaching, and they were quite specific about it, was how to take the attitude of a warrior into your normal existence. And uh, Don Juan says that the basic difference between the, the warrior and the average man is that while the average man sees everything as either a blessing or a curse, the warrior sees it as a challenge. And uh, that's true of, you know, whether you're a, a a, a, whether you're a soldier in a war or um, whether you're uh, on a spiritual path of some sort, uh, you've got to see it as a challenge. If you see it as a blessing or a curse, you're going to go down. And uh, Carlos Castaneda is a uh, writer, by the way, for those who uh, don't know who we're talking about here. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, he's such a big person in my life, I forget that there are people with, that don't know. But back in the late 50s, I think it was, he was a, uh, a grad student at UCLA. And um, uh, he wrote this series of books. But the thing about Carlos is he was, uh, his spirit animal is the coyote, which is the trickster. And so he, um, the trickster sometimes will lie to you to teach a larger truth. And sometimes they'll just lie to you. Uh, and sometimes they'll tell you the straight story. So um, you have to you have to look at everything that guy said uh, with a critical eye. And that, I like that. You know, I like that. It keeps you alert. It keeps you on your toes, which is where you should be. Um, and he was the guy who revised all that Indian medicine, uh, power plants. Uh, peyote, blah blah blah, all that stuff. And but he he wrote the way he wrote about it. He played it very mysterious. And my, my actual teacher and my teachers were mostly this guy's apprentices, but I was also a student of, of uh, 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 Don uh, Don Miguel Ruiz and the uh, author of the Four Agreements. And Miguel he made it so clear and simple. There's no wasted comma in four agreements. It's such a good book. And, you know, you don't have to think of it as being a spiritual path because it's just good advice. But it is, okay, spirit and attitude are, uh, I think, you think about religion would agree, they're synonyms. And uh, he, the four agreements will teach you an attitude adjustment and Make your life 
um, way, way happier and way more successful and way more satisfying and way more all things good and positive that you want it to be. It's just a, um, okay, this is the, the, the Boston Patriots quarterback, Tom Brady. Tom Brady. He is a, he is a, yeah, he's a, he's a devotee of the four agreements. He says he reads it every year over again. Oh, really? I had no I idea. I, I, yeah, and I've read it four or five times myself. And it's just, I've memorized what the four agreements are, and I use them as a checklist. If um, I'm not feeling right, I'm violating one of them, and um, maybe two, but certainly one, and usually the same one, which is taking something personally that, you know, uh, by some guy who doesn't know what he's talking about in the first place. And um, uh, anyway, they'll just, it's just so clear and simple, and uh, it's, You've got to read the book, and you, you're, if you read it the first time and wait a year, and you read it again, you'll see things in it you missed the first time, and it's like you're reading a whole other book. But um, it will, it, it, it can reform your life. It could change your life, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd already been studying this stuff for um, years. For decades. And before I, uh, yeah, as a, as a reader, not as a student. And then I, I got a deal to interview uh, Don Gelf in the San Diego Reader, and I got to meet him. And I, I took one look at his eyes, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, you went to Mexico to like, interview him, correct? Uh, well, I actually I interviewed him first in Vegas, but um, then I, um, I went, and he said, you got to go to Mexico with me. And I said, um, well, you know, uh, it's um, uh, or uh, they're not going to pay me to go to Mexico. And he said, "Well, you've got to go." And I said, "Okay, if if this story is a cover story, and they pay double for a cover story, and I'll be able to afford to go." And he said, "All right, we'll make it a cover story." <clears throat> well, that's the only cover story I ever did for the San Diego Reader. And, nice. Um, okay. Well, he, I, I'm not sure how he did it. He has a way of doing these things, but the fix was in. And um, uh, that's, okay, Miguel, he, um, he, he's, he's done a number of miraculous things. And I asked him, so tell me about one of your miracles. And he said, well, he said, I had a, a class up on top of Machu Picchu, and it was night. And he said, we could clear, we see all the way, you know, the, the all around there. It was perfectly clear night, not a, not a cloud in the sky. And um, he said, what would you guys say if, if in one minute we were completely blanketed in fog, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face? And one of the students said, well, that would be cool. And there came the fog, and they were all covered in fog. And then he said, what would you say if in one minute it was as clear as it was before? And they said, well, let's see it. And, and it was. So years later, I was taking a course from Heather Ashamara, who is a great fellow teacher, and uh, she's mostly working with women now, but she she just she's great for anybody. And um, anyway, I said she was telling about being on on her first trip to Machu Picchu with him, and I said, was that when he brought in the frog? And she said, yeah, I think it was, but um, that was the weirdest thing he did. And I said, okay, what was the weirdest thing you did? And she said, well, 
we were in the middle of a lightning strike and he would point and that's where lightning would strike. And he would point and lightning would strike and he would point again and lightning would strike where he was pointing. And he did that six or seven times. Wow. And I don't want him pointing at yeah, me now. So, well, I asked him, I said, how, you know, how'd you do that? And he said, he said, first of all, I didn't cause the lightning to strike, but if you clear your mind and just open it up, the universe will tell you things. And I knew where it was going to strike. And, <clears throat> okay, I have a theory. Uh, when you when you learn this, this shamanistic stuff and this magical stuff, there's a lot of things you can do. Um, but everybody gets extraordinary uh, skills. And um, Miguel got those extraordinary skills because he was a teacher and he had to demonstrate that there's more going on than you know high school physics says, and so he was he would do it that way. Now, <clears throat> when I got far enough along, I was not a teacher. Uh, I had a really sick wife, and all of a sudden I started picking up healing techniques. Ah. And I I learned enough healing techniques that I made her last three years, and she was she was in bad shape. She was paralyzed. She had dementia, um, and she was afraid, and I learned these. He, I could, I could deactivate a panic attack in mid sentence. I mean, I have done that several times, and I just learned how to do it. And it's not, it's not magical shamanistic stuff in this case. It's uh, a healing technique called the emotion code that was developed by a retired chiropractor. But I read his book and. Uh, I was about halfway through the book one day, and she was she had a couple of nurses in there, and I guess they were a little rough with her, or maybe she just she just wasn't having it, and she was screaming at him, and she was yeah. fighting him, and, and so I took that book out back, and I turned to the page that told how to use that technique. Um, and uh, by distance, not 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 by hands-on, but by distance. And I just did it. And I was like, you know, she was in her, her bedroom in the front of the house. I was out back of the house in the backyard. And uh, I did the thing, and I went back in there, and she and the nurses were laughing and carrying on and just having a great time. And was she afraid so, of death, by the way? I'm sorry? I said, was she afraid of death? Yes. And, and at that point, I'm sure you sort of um, gave her a talk. I, I would. It, it, it's, it's. Not, uh, there was no talking involved. It was all uh, gestures and. Oh, I see. Anyway, but but I was like, I would be like uh, sitting in a uh, in a in a recliner in the same room, and she would be in the middle of one of those panic attacks. I just shut it down, and then it would be, "What do you want for dinner, babe?" Wow, you know? uh, and it was, um, and I did that two, three times a week for the last couple of years of her life. Well, that's a um, pretty interesting uh, trait to you know be able to do uh, for people, and um, you know a lot of people would, would like to learn how to do something like that for their own panic attacks, uh, especially well, now. Read people... the emotion codes by Doctor Bradley Cooper, and he'll tell you how to do it. And yeah, there you uh, go, people. If you want to learn how to do that, there you go. Yeah, if you need to learn how to do that, that's that's one way to do it. And um, 
you know, I picked up some other healing techniques. Uh, there's a brilliant woman named Eileen McCusick who has a healing technique called biofield tuning, which she does with moving tuning forks through your aura, but you can also do that distance, long distance. And um, uh, I've used it to clear, basically psychoanalyze myself, you know, just uh, with some old emotion that got trapped in my field when yeah. I was three years old, rears its ugly head, I just deactivate it, and it's gone. It took me three years to get through all of them. And I mean, I, and I was doing it um, every other day. You've got a got a little recovery time you need, but I did. I got rid of hundreds of them. Very nice. Now I just now I'm pretty even tempered, you know. Yeah, we're very laid back, uh, Jim. And I think lots of uh, newer people out there listening to you the very first time here, um, they'll enjoy your book. They're, I'm sure they're enjoying this interview right now. And of course, your book is Dreaming Circus, Special Ops, LSD, and My Unlikely Path to Taltic Wisdom. And that's uh, by our friend right here, uh, Mr. Jim Morris. And I do want to thank you for being a part of the program. But before I do let you go, I did have a just a, just a few quick uh, questions here. They're a little bit wild. Um, okay, hit me. Well, I don't think they're that wild, but you know, in terms of let's say something. Like the paranormal or aliens and Bigfoot and these sort of uh, fringe topics, uh, do, do you believe in any of these sort of things? Uh, for instance, do you believe in extraterrestrial life? Um, I okay, I, I don't actually believe anything. Uh, I ascribe orders of probability, and I, I don't have any opinion on Bigfoot because I've seen no evidence whatsoever. Well, I have seen three UFOs, so I believe in UFOs, and uh, I don't know what they are, uh, you know, but I saw stuff in the sky that I didn't oh, know what it was. interesting. I was going to say you saw something out there in Vietnam. Uh, yeah, I did, actually. Whoa, uh, That okay. was the first time, um, and I was. it's the only time that we ever camped that, that there was no overhead cover. Usually we were under a thick, you know, like triple canopy jungle. Yeah. But this time we were just out, out in the open. Out in the um, open. Okay. You know, and since it's dark, you've got to put out all the fires. You've got to be quiet. Yeah. Uh, you don't want anybody to know where you are. So I'm just laying there waiting. And it's, you know, it's like seven o'clock and I'm not going to be asleep for two hours. I'm just laying there looking up at the sky. And all of a sudden, one of the stars scooted from the upper right corner of my field division to the lower right corner of my field division. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I watched that star, and after a while, it scooted over to the lower left corner of my field division. And I kept watching it, and then it just shot off and kept going. Completely silent. There's no way it could have been an airplane or a meteor or, or any phenomenon that I have any idea what it was. Uh, it was just what I described to you. Wow. Uh, Must have uh, scared the hell out of you was, seeing something like it that. Was, uh, it, it, was an, it was an unidentified aerial phenomenon for sure. Very cool. And did you ever mention this to any of your platoon? No. You kept that secret? I didn't, I didn't mention I didn't mention it. To, well, I didn't keep it a secret. I was just, you got to understand when you're in a war, you're in a war. Yeah. And, and there's nothing else really going on. 
It's just the war. And yeah, so your focus wasn't on that exactly. You're focused on being there tomorrow. Right. You know? Living tomorrow for sure. Yeah. I get you. Very cool experience, though. Yeah, it was. Very nice. And memorable. I, I thought about it a lot later. Yeah, I bet. Something like that um, probably will never leave your mind. Well, I, that wasn't the only time. Um, we saw something else again. Went, More recent. Well, in, 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 in 80, I think it was 80, uh, I was going through Carlin, Nevada, and that's where uh, Rolling Thunder, the Cherokee Shoshone medicine man, lived. And I knew uh, is the name that he went by among white people was John... I can't remember his last name, but I knew what it was then. So I looked it up, and sure enough, he was in the book. I called him, and I went out there and and, uh, had a conversation with him. And um, then when I left, uh, my wife hadn't been able to go in because uh, she was in her period, and medicine men, uh, the energy of menstruating women, just they can't. (laughs) <laughs> around it. Sorry, women. I'm sorry to disappoint you. As a as a as a, as a medicine. <laughs> yes. So I went out and she said, "Look over there." And I looked, and it looked like a jet taking off, but there was no noise, and there was no airport out there. It was just desert, and it, it you know, it, like I said, it looked like a jet taking off. Then another time here in L.A., uh, this is the last time this happened, and that was it, that was in like '94, maybe. Um, I was gassing up my car on Vermont and I just, you know, it's afternoon and I'm standing there by the car while the gas goes in the car and look up in the sky and I saw what looked like a, a huge translucent donut about eight miles across up there in the sky. And, um, you know, but it, it, it was very clear. It was quite visible, but if, if you didn't look right at it, you wouldn't see it. And um, I had no idea what it was. Um, and then later, uh, one of my Toltec teachers turned me on to a guy named Stuart Wilde, who is a New Age writer. And um, <clears throat> and I thought he was kind of a nut job, frankly. And I was reading his blog, yes. and he described exactly what I had seen. The only time I've ever come across a description of exactly what I had seen. And he called it an interdimensional portal. Ooh. And okay. I like that. Whatever. Uh, uh, maybe it is, and, you know, maybe it's, maybe he is a nut job. But um, it, it was, you know, it was unidentified. It was an unidentified, another unidentified aerial phenomenon. Uh, of all the stuff I've seen like that, none of it was like a disc shaped saucer. And this was in 94, you said? Yeah, I think that's when it Okay. Was. So you have seen some uh, bizarre things in the sky. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I'm I'm quite interested in all of that, and wonder what it is, and that's a that's a current field of investigation. I'm checking into something called the quantum healing hypno, quantum hypnosis healing technique, which was a lady named Dolores Cannon uh, puzzled this one out. And she's uh, she's developed her own hypnosis technique, which allows you to access areas of the subconscious that most hypnosis techniques don't. And so she's done. She started out doing, you know, basic, which can get skinny, 
and then she graduated to past life regressions, and then uh, she started talking to alien abductees. And <clears throat> all of these people didn't know each other, but they had pretty much the same story. That was yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. Some of these stories that you hear, these abduction cases, and of course you have, you know, more along the lines of a sort of soft uh, disclosure by our own U.S. government, finally admitting that they don't really know what these things are, um, and they don't well, come from them. They say that's a joke. They've, they've admitted. <laughs> they've admitted what everybody else that already they knew. know what everybody else already knows. Correct. And they they obviously know a great deal more than that and they aren't admitting to any of them. I think that's so uh, that's still, the case they here. They still don't trust us. They still think we're idiots. Uh, I'm afraid that may be the case that they think we're all just um just a bunch of morons really, but um those that are in the know they are, you know, keeping the keeping the lid very tightly shut on UFOs for whatever reason. Some would say it's a sort of well, a... Well, I've kind of written the government off. I'm I'm more interested in people like uh, Stephen Greer, who has his CE5 technique, and, you know, he'll he'll take a group out, and he has founded, uh, actually, I think by now, hundreds of groups like this. Yeah, to go and see... these people will go out go on, see UFOs, right. on, a, on a hillside at night, yeah. and they will actually summon UFOs. Yes, there's lots of people that and are show. various people doing things of that nature, um, but Greer being the uh, biggest name of them all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very Fascinating cool. stuff. Just, yeah, we live. You know, I, I I tell people sometimes. You know, when I was a kid, I lived in Oklahoma. Today, I live in a galaxy. Right. You know, in my mind, you know, and it, actually, it doesn't matter whether. All this stuff that I'm interested in is happening exactly as it's described to me or not. The fact is that it's still where my mind is. It's still what I'm thinking about. It's still, and you know, some of it, some of it's too, too much coincidence to be coincidence. I agree. I agree. Um, well, Jim, you know, I do want to thank you for your time here on the program. I hope you had a good time. Uh, I uh, really enjoyed. I had a great time, Michael. I had a thank great time. Thank you very much. Yeah, Jim, we're going to have to talk again. And, you know, at your age, uh, how old are you again? Are you 84 or 85, Jim? 85. You're 85. 85. And, uh, Jim, I mean, if uh, someone ever bumped into you and they were like, hey, Jim, how are you? Um, you know, matter of fact, I have, you know, I have some acid. Um, do you want to try this with me? Um, w would you be hesitant to ever do that, or are you fair game these days? Uh, um, okay. First of all, acid burns an enormous amount of energy. And old age is, in my experience, largely an exercise in energy wrangling. <laughs> right. You know? Yes. You've got, le you've got less energy, and it, it, you're, you come by it harder. And you have to uh, figure out what to do with it and focus it. You don't want to waste it. Words of advice, and, people. And so, so it was. I'd have to have. I'd have to have a reason other than, uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't do it to go to, see just to do it. friends. I hear you. <laughs> yeah, just to do it. I mean, you have taken acid um, before skydiving, I think, right? Just once. Jesus, I don't even know what that would be like, but that's insane. Well, it was it was it was an interesting <laughs> <laughs> to say the very least. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk about that story the next time you're here, Jim. Okay, great. 
Yeah, well, you know, you know who to contact to set it up, and I'm not going anywhere. That's right, my friend. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for being a part of the program. It was a honor and pleasure to have you here, and we'll do it again, my friend. Okay, great. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Take care. And um, we are clear, by the way. And there he goes, boys and girls. That was Mr. Jim Morris. His book, Dreaming Circus, Special Ops, LSD, and My Unlikely Path to Toltec Wisdom. And you can find the book on Amazon. Just type in Dreaming Circus and you'll find it. You don't have to type in all of that. I'm sure you'll find it. But yes, Dreaming Circus. Go check it out whenever you can. He is a retired U.S. Army Special Forces Major who did multiple tours in Vietnam. What a wild guy. And I mean that in the most positive ways. Very interesting. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. That was fun. And uh, boys and girls, we will return again very soon to do more live shows for you. But unfortunately, the very last time we were live with Mr. Marshall Masters, we were hit with a yeah, we were hit with a yellow card, a flag of sorts, because we mentioned COVID, and they don't like that sort of thing. So that's exactly what happened. It was quote unquote medical misinformation and that episode has been removed from YouTube. But don't worry, it's still available for you on the podcast rendition of the program. You can get it wherever you listen to podcasts, especially on iTunes. That's, that's another good place to go. Spotify and Podbean is a new favorite of mine, by the way. Podbean. Great platform. Go check that out if you haven't already. And of course, those of you who signed up on Patreon, thank you so much. For doing so, we will give you more material very soon. And the next time you hear me will probably be with either Mike Hideous or maybe the freight train. We have no idea just yet, but we'll find out. Stay tuned, folks. No matter where you are on this island Earth, I do wish you the very best. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody.